Hello, church. It is so great to see you here. Lenexa, whether you're in the North Sanctuary, the South Sanctuary, the East Venue, or watching in the cafe, those of you from our Speedway campus and those of you who are watching online, I just have to confess, I'm pretty excited. Okay? Because today, this weekend, is the Masters weekend. But I'm not talking about golf. I am talking about the Masters weekend, right? Did you know that 1990 years ago on this day, there was a showdown? There was a match between Jesus, not known as the bear or the shark or the black knight, but known as the Lion of Judah, came up against sin and death. And on this day, 1990 years ago, Jesus blew the socks off of sin and death, and he did it for us. That's what I'm talking about. That's why I'm so excited. And because he did it for us, there's an estimated 2.4 billion people all over the world who are gathering together today to engage in a harmonious chant that goes like this. I say he is risen. You say he is risen indeed. I say he is risen, and you say... I say he is risen, and you say, yeah. So Jesus, the master storyteller, has one more story to tell us. It is the last week that he's going to walk on this earth. And on this particular story, it is on a Tuesday of that week. And this week, if you're new to all of this, is called the Passion Week. And passion refers to suffering. And what we learn is that Jesus was heaven-bent with passion to enter into the suffering for our sakes, for our sakes. And I have to tell you, the reason we're here to celebrate is because he did this for us. And what he accomplished on this day, if you don't know the why, what he accomplished on this day is that it is the first time since the fall that humanity has a shot at hope. It is the first time we have the opportunity, the only opportunity to get back into the garden and to have a relationship with God and to actually live forever. That's a big deal, and that's what he accomplished on this day, and that's why I'm here, to celebrate all that. So it is Tuesday, and in 72 hours, on Friday, he will enter into the most intense part of the passion or the suffering when he's going to be nailed to a cross, but this is Tuesday, and so on Tuesday, he is in Jerusalem, and he is teaching in the temple courts, and the people are there listening to the magnificent teaching of Jesus, and as we've seen throughout this series, uh, in the audience, uh, there are these Jewish religious leaders who do not like Jesus. They're intimidated by Jesus. They want to see the end of Jesus, and they are heckling him and challenging him while he's teaching They're saying, by what authority do you say all of these crazy, unbelievable things? And as we've seen in the teachings of Jesus, that he never directly answers these knuckleheads. He never does. Instead, he chooses to tell a story. And embedded in the story is the answer to their question, by what authority he says this. But also embedded in the story is a challenge, not only for the religious leaders, but for every single person who dared to walk into this place today. Would you like to hear the story? 
Yeah, it's found in Luke chapter 20. You can open your Bibles there or open up the West Side app where all the scriptures I'm going to be referring to are at as well as an outline for our talk today. Here's the story, verse 9. He went on to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, rented it to some farmers and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant, but that one also they beat and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. He sent still a third, and they wounded him and threw him out. Now, in this story, in this parable, the owner of the vineyard represents God, and the sharecroppers or the renters of the owner's property refers to Israel, refers to Israel. And it was common for the sharecroppers to give a portion of their crops to the owner as payment for the rent. And so the owner is sending servants to collect on the rent to give them this message. And in this particular story, the servants represent the prophets of the Old Testament. Prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Hosea and Amos. And in the parable, when the servants came to collect... They beat them up and threw them out. And the same thing happened in real life when the Old Testament prophets came to Israel to give the message of God. They disregarded them and threw them out. So the story continues in verse 13. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my son whom I love. They will respect him. But when the, when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is an heir, they said. Let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard, and they killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When the people heard this, they said, God forbid. Now, in this parable, in this story, the son represents Jesus, And here, Jesus is answering the challenged questions of the religious leaders. He's saying, by what authority do I say these things? I am the Son of God. That's by the authority, the authority that I speak these things. Now, the renters, the farmers, think to themselves, wait a minute. If we kill the owner's son, who is the only heir... When the owner passes away, they will have to, by law, deed all of this to us. And that is precisely what the religious leaders are going to do 72 hours from this Tuesday. They are going to take Jesus outside of the city and they're going to crucify him in cahoots with the Roman government. And he's going to be put to death. Their logic is is pretty strong, right? But here's the deal. What is the owner going to do to them when he finds out that they have killed his only son whom he loves? It says he's going to kill them. And he's going to cast them out. And he's going to give their land to be farmed by another group of people. Now, in the real story of our lives, that group of people 
that he's going to give the land to upon the rejection of Israel is a group of people called Gentiles. Now, if you're new to all of this, you don't know this, but if you're not Jewish, you are, in biblical times, you are a Gentile. So if there's any people here of Jewish descent, thank you for Jesus. That's really cool. That was a really great thing. Way to go. I hope you believe in him. But for the rest of us, we were grafted in or included into the story upon the rejection of Israel. And as a result, we're able to take in the good news of what we're talking about today. And it's why we've gathered today. Can I get a hallelujah from the Gentiles? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Okay, now Jesus is going to shift his metaphor from farming, which everybody in his audience that day would have understood I don't understand farming. He's going to shift it from farming to construction, which everyone listening would have understood. Again, not a metaphor. I totally get. But his audience is totally connecting to it. Now, the people, when they heard that the son was killed in the story, they said, God forbid. And this was Jesus' response. Jesus looked directly at them and asked, then what is the meaning of that which is written? Now he's going to quote somebody. The stone the builder rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. Now in the story here, Jesus is going back to the Old Testament and he is going to quote Psalm 118 verse 22, which was written by a guy named David or King David. And the religious leaders in the audience would have been very familiar with what Jesus was quoting. They had even memorized it, but they had no idea what David was actually talking about. So Jesus is schooling them on what David meant when he wrote this a thousand years earlier. Okay? The stone refers to Jesus. And the builders, once again, refers to Israel. And the builders, or Israel, are going to reject the stone, or in this case, reject Jesus, the Messiah, and they're going to fulfill this prophecy of David that he wrote a thousand years ago in 72 hours when they crucify him on a cross. But it turns out that this stone is not any ordinary stone, but rather it is the cornerstone. Now, what does that mean? What I'd like to do is have you go on a journey with me past the Gospels to the book of Acts where Peter, one of the disciples of Jesus, is going to give his very first sermon to the Israelites, and he's also going to give the first update after the crucifixion of Christ. Here's his sermon. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth, was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs. But God did among you, what, which God did among you through him, as you yourself know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. So what Peter's saying is that 
the miracles, the signs, and the wonders that Jesus performed in front of everybody during his ministry on earth should have been convincing proof that he's not ordinary, but he is who he claimed to be, the Son of God. I mean, think about the miracles. The one that comes to my mind is when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane on Thursday, and he is exiting the garden with his disciples, and Judas, the the disciple who betrayed him is with a bunch of Roman guards to arrest him. Remember the story? And then Peter takes out, get, grabs one of the swords of the soldiers and cuts the dude's ear off. And the ear falls to the ground. Jesus reaches over, picks up the ear, and, and, and puts it back on the man's head, and the ear sticks. Yeah. And he can hear out of it. At what point, if you are a Roman soldier, do you say, I'm out? I'm out, man. I am not going to have on, on my hands the arresting of this dude. There's something very unique about this guy. Then, in verse 24, two words are written. And from now on, when you read the Bible and you see these two words, circle it and listen in, because something unbelievable is about to happen. Here are the two words in verse 24. But God. But God intervened in the situation and raised Jesus from the dead. <laughs> As it turns out, it's impossible to kill God. Now, you can kill him in your mind. You can kill him in your heart. But it's impossible to kill God. So you know what that means, right? It means he's alive. It means he's alive today. And so I don't know what you say, but I say he's risen. I say he's risen. I say he's risen. Woo! Yeah. So what? So what, right? Some of you have to ask the question, like, so what does this mean to my life? I've heard this story on and on and on and on, but I don't really get what it means to my life. As I told you, there would be embedded in this story a challenge for every one of us. You have to make this decision. And here's basically the essence of, of the decision. What are you going to do with this stone that we call Jesus? What are you going to do? Now, to help you make an informed decision, it might be helpful for you to understand historically the role and importance of a cornerstone. So listen in. Historically, the cornerstone was the most important part of any building. The total weight of an edifice rested on this particular stone, which, if removed, would collapse the whole structure. The cornerstone was also the key to keeping the walls straight. The builders would take uh, sidings along the edges of this part of the building. If the cornerstone was set properly, the stonemasons would be assured that all the other corners of the building would be at the appropriate angles as well. Thus, the cornerstone became a symbol for that which held life together. Mm. So the cornerstone is laid first, and it has the capacity to hold the entire weight of your building, meaning of your life. Here's a picture of a cornerstone, a drawing, and you can see the cornerstone. It is carrying the entire weight of the building. Thus, the cornerstone has spiritually the ability to carry the weight of our entire life. 
But we also know that the cornerstone was the first stone laid upon which all the other stones will find their reference. If the cornerstone is not set properly, if it's not square, the rest of the stones will be out of line. And so the cornerstone has a role of aligning the building properly. And spiritually speaking, the cornerstone has the ability to put our life in alignment. So here's the first of two decisions. You have to decide if you're going to accept or reject the stone. You have to decide for yourself. You're going to accept or reject. If you think the stone is ordinary, then you're going to toss it out. But if you think the stone is the cornerstone, then you are going to accept it. You're going to receive it, right? Now, I want to fast forward uh, to a sermon that Peter gave, his second sermon to the Israelites in Acts chapter 4. He's going to refer to the cornerstone and give us the importance or the why. He preaches, Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Now here's the point. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. So here's a question I'm asking you. So who do you say Jesus is? And it's not a very difficult decision to make. You only have to answer one question. If you think Jesus was an ordinary man who may have been crucified, but when he was crucified and died, he didn't rise from the dead, then your decision is simple. You need to reject. However... If you believe that Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God, you believe he is the Son of God, and that when he was crucified on the cross and died, he didn't stay dead, but rather he rose again on the third day to make payment for all of our sins, past, present, and future, and if we receive it, we come back into a relationship with God and inherit eternal life, right? It all hinges on what in your heart you believe about the resurrection. If you believe he was raised from the dead, intellectually, you have no alternative but to receive the stone. And you have to do it deliberately. You have to decide for yourself. So I'm asking you, have you done that? I did. I had a youth pastor lead me in a prayer, and the purpose of the prayer was for me to declare with my mouth and my heart to God that I receive Jesus as the cornerstone, and I want to do the same thing for you. I want to do the same thing for you. In a moment, I'm going to kneel, and I'm going to say a prayer similar to the prayer that was said to me, and I'm going to invite you if you believe this, to repeat after me. Now, some of you, probably many of you, have already made deliberately this declaration, but I'm going to invite you to say it again. Not because you have to, but because you get to. I say this prayer, I kid you not, every single morning of my life. Not because I have to, like God forgot. I say it because I get to remind myself of the amazing grace and the unbelievable hope I have regardless of what happens to me from this moment forward. 
So I'm going to invite you to say it again. But for some of you, you never remember a time when you personally, deliberately told God you received. So I'm going to ask you all, wherever you're at, online, everywhere, to um, bow your heads and close your eyes. And I'm going to say a prayer. Now, if you don't believe, uh, be quiet. (laughs) It's not for you. Maybe sometime later. Here we go. Dear God, I do not want to be like the religious leaders who rejected your son. I believe Jesus is the cornerstone of my life. And I want to accept and receive him today. I confess before you that I have sin in my life. And I want to be forgiven by Jesus. I want you to move my life in a brand new direction under your authority. So today I confess Jesus as my Lord and Savior. The Son of God who died and rose again on the third day. Come into my life and grant me eternal life by your amazing grace. By the authority of the name of Jesus, I pray. And all of God's people said, amen. Amen. Now, with cornerstones, whenever the cornerstone is laid and the building is built, there is a tradition to etch into the stone the year the cornerstone was laid. Here's an example of a cornerstone that was laid, and they etched its establishment date, which is 19. 42. We're going to do something today as sort of a, a way for you to declare. And so we have provided a cornerstone for every household that is represented here today. And as we enter into a time of worship, we're going to invite you to come and grab one of these. And on the sides, there are these white crayons. And we're going to ask you to etch into the stone the date that you and the members of your family were established in Christ? Yeah. Tricky question? No, it's not a trick question. For me, uh, the date I wrote in is established 1974. Uh, I remember it was actually June 14th, 1974. And then for Roseanne, Roseanne grew up in church. I did not. And so when she was five years old in this small church in Ohio... She wanted to accept, just like we talked about today, and so she made it a point of everyone knew what was happening. She came down in front of the church uh, on a Sunday, and she met with the pastor to receive, just like we gave you the opportunity to receive Christ, and the, and the pastor got the information wrong, uh, and he said to my wife, a little girl, five years old, sitting there, I mean, standing there, scared out of her mind, he said, here's little Roseanne with all her cute curls and all that, and, and I got news that she received Christ today in Sunday school class. Isn't that right, little Miss Roseanne? And Roseanne's scared spitless. And so she goes, uh-huh. But she didn't. She didn't. And so for years, even when I encountered her at the age of 14, she was carrying, I didn't know, how much doubt about her relationship with Jesus. Until her first year of college, she went away and she was sitting in a gathering like this and she realized, why don't I just end this doubt and declare today 
And so at college, her first semester, she declared to God, she wants to receive Jesus as the chief cornerstone. So I asked her two days ago, I said, what date do you want me to put down for the date that you, Roseanne, were established in Christ? Is it 1964 when you were five or 1980, your first year of college? And she chose 1980. She said, 1980 is when I said it. 1980 was when I declared it. It's not enough for you to have an intellectual assent to this. Oh, I'm familiar with the story. You have to decide for yourself. And so we're going to give you a chance to think about that. Now, the second decision you need to make is whether or not you're going to build your life on Christ. To build my life on Christ. Say that out loud. To build my life on Christ. You see, you can lay the foundation in Christ, Jesus as the chief cornerstone, and they make the decision not to build your life on Christ. Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, uh, speaks to us about this. So listen in. He writes, By the grace of God given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If, it has been built, if, if, the, if what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burnt up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the fire. Now, what is he talking about? What he is talking about is uh, he's talking to Christians here, and he's referring to a person who laid the foundation, who received Jesus as the chief cornerstone of their life. But then that person decided afterwards not to build their life in Christ. It's a very, very common story in America. Uh, the majority of people confess Jesus before the age of 14, and then uh, somewhere along the way, they go to college or whatever it is, and they walk away from it, and while they have established their life in Christ, they do not build their life on the principles of Christ. They don't build their life on the principles of of Christ, And so um, I'm going to ask you the question, uh, where are you at? The person who has established Jesus as the foundation, but then chooses to build their life on wood, hay, and straw, and stones, the Bible says that is similar to building your life on money, materialism, fame, pleasure, power. None of those things are wrong in and of themselves unless they become the key ingredients upon which you build your life. And what Paul is saying here is there's going to be the day that will bring it all to light. It's referring to the day that Jesus returns and all believers in Christ will give an account for the works of their life while on earth. And our works will be tested by fire. And if we built our life on things that burn, wood, hay, and straw, then it will burn to the ground, but the foundation will still be present. Here's a picture of a house that has been burnt to the ground. And you'll notice the only thing remaining is the foundation, which means what? Which means Means on that day, if you've not built your life on Christ, all will be burnt down, but 
you will still have the foundation, which means what? It means you will still be saved. Yeah. That, my friends, is the immense grace of God. That he remembered your confession when you were 12, when you were 13, and yet you did not build your life on him. And he's saying, what a shame. What a shame. I didn't do all this for you just to save you at the end. I wanted you to enjoy life in me all along the way. Matter of fact, listen to the words of Peter. Now he's writing in a letter he wrote to, to some people. This is very important. Now pay attention. He says, as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in me will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. Now listen up. In the Old Testament, the residence of God on earth was in a temple. They laid the foundation, and then according to the distinct instructions of God, they built the temple according to the principles of God. And when it was all done, the presence of God descended into a room in the back of the temple called the Holy of Holies. And it was sectioned off uh, to access by a gargantuan veil that kept us from entering into the presence of God. Why? Because the payment for sin had not been made effective yet. And so, therefore, we did not have access to the presence of God. Here's a picture of the temple in that back. There is a room called the Holy of Holies. Now, turn the pages to the New Testament, and we're now on Friday, Good Friday, and Jesus is on the cross, and at the very moment that Jesus exhales his last breath and dies... We are told that over in the temple, that veil that sectioned us off from the presence of God is torn from top to bottom so that the presence of God is released from the Holy of Holies. And the question is, where does the presence of God go now? And the answer is, in the new temple. The question is, where is the new temple? The new temple is all of us who have established the foundation in Christ. The presence of God is deposited into our life, and it is God's desire to build our lives if we follow him into a magnificent masterpiece. You see, he wants to build your life into something beautiful, but you have to want it. So do you want it? Then build your life on Christ. He wants to make your life a focal point for that which is good, that blesses others that are around you. But you have to ask yourself, do I really want that of my life? Then build your life on Christ. He wants to build your life and fill it with purpose and meaning. But you have to ask yourself, do you really want purpose and meaning from God? Then build your life on Christ. He wants your life to put off a sweet aroma that brings honor to God and draws others to him. But you have to ask yourself, do you want that of your life? Yes. Then build your life on Christ. It's going to cost you something, though. Salvation costs Jesus everything, but if you're going to build your life in Christ, it's going to cost you. And I don't mean to be disrespectful. Please accept this as just truth-telling. 
It's going to take more than being known as a creaster. Do you know what a creaster is? It's someone who only comes to church on Christmas and Easter. Yeah, that's not going to cut it. I don't mean to be disrespectful. I had a pastor friend of mine. I would never say this, but I'm telling you the story. Uh, he would always say at the beginning of his Easter services, hey, for some of you, I'd like to be the first to wish you a Merry Christmas. Yeah, yeah, if the shoe fits right, man. And I don't mean to be disrespectful. I'm just going to say that you're not building your life on Christ and you're taking away from yourself this amazing life that is available in Christ Jesus. It involves you being involved in the word of God every day of your life, seeking God's principles of how to build your life. It involves being in, in, in prayer every single day of your life to get to know God and to find direction for your life. It involves being in, in a community of believers, really valuing corporate worship, missing very seldom and also being involved in a smaller platoon of Christians that are also rowing in the same direction. It involves knowing your spiritual gift that God deposited in you and using a large portion of your life to serve God and the things that matter to him. And you know what? That's what Westside is really good at. You told us that. We are good, if you're overwhelmed by all this, at helping you take the next step on building this magnificent life in God. So let us. Now, one more thing before we close. You may recall in the story that Jesus told that the cornerstone is also powerful. You remember when he said, if something falls on the cornerstone, it'll be broken into pieces, and if the cornerstone falls on something, it'll be broken into pieces? What is he saying? He's saying, in addition to all the things we've talked about, the cornerstone is power. The cornerstone is power. So if we build our life on the cornerstone, we have access to the power of God in our life. So much so that if you are coming up against a battle with sin, which you are, or death, or the fear of death, or sickness, right, or anxiety, or depression, or fear, or betrayal, all of these things that weigh heavy in our life, addictions, right? All these things that weigh us down. If Christ is in your life, if you have the power of Christ in your life, we have the ability to destroy these things that tear us down, right? Psalm 127.1 says, unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. My encouragement to all of you is to establish your life in Christ and then build the rest of your life in Christ and you will never be put to shame. I say to you, he is risen. He is risen. He is risen. One more time, he is risen. He is risen. Woo! Be standing to your feet. And now during our time of worship, I'm going to ask one member of a household to come and pick up a cornerstone to take with you and you'll see the markers where you can write your date of establishment. To God be the glory.